Well, why don't we go ahead and get uh, started then this morning? We're, uh, we've been talking about uh, Christianity or the relationship of the church to being a Christian. Last time we just covered some broad stuff like um, what does it even mean to say I, I can be a Christian without the church? We saw that just from the perspective of how those words actually, what they mean in the Bible, that doesn't even make sense to say because the church is the body of Christ. To be a Christian means to be connected to Christ, so you can't have one without the other. But then, of course, uh, that led us into the question of, well, granted, there's the body of Christ, this big C church, which is the fellowship of all believers in all times, in all places, the invisible church that you can't see because it's a fellowship of faith. And Everybody who's a Christian belongs to that, whether they live here today and are in this room, or whether they live in Lithuania, or for that matter, whether they lived 1,000 years ago. They are all connected to the body of Christ. And in that abstract sense, probably even people who don't go to church could easily say, sure, 100% I'm behind that. I need the church because that's what it means to be a Christian, but that does not mean I have to be part of a local congregation. I don't necessarily need to be regularly involved with other specific Christians in order to be part of the body of Christ, was a possible objection, right? Um, And we just started looking at what the local congregation is and how it relates to the body of Christ. I can't remember exactly where we left off last week, but I do believe... um, We talked about how to be part of the big D church, body of Christ, invisible church. What you, of course, need, and truly all you need, is faith. Genuine, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior. And, of course, we could throw other things in there. Trinity, um, believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believe that Jesus Christ has become a human being to save you from your sins. All of that stuff. But key point being, you need faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior to be part of the body of Christ, right? And if you have that, you are part of the body of Christ. But then we went to the immediate next question. How do you get faith in the first place? Where does it come from? And we saw that scripture gives a fairly straightforward answer. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the one who works faith, and he does it by using the tools of word and sacraments. Faith comes by hearing in that verse we've quoted many times from Romans 10. And hearing comes by the word of God. You don't magically wake up one morning and suddenly the Holy Spirit zapped you, who's been a Buddhist your entire life, never heard the name of Jesus Christ, into suddenly believing that Jesus Christ was sent by God to die for your sins. God could do it, I suppose. Maybe in some far corners on a rare occasion he does it, but first we have no reason to expect that he's going to do that because he never promised he would. Second of all, he has promised that this is the ordinary way he creates faith in people, by preaching of the word and things like baptism, Lord's Supper, strength and nourish, and also give faith. Um, Those promises of Christ that he will forgive your sins um, that's how faith gets established. doesn't happen ordinarily any other way. And of course, that led us to the question, well, how do you get put in touch with the word and the sacraments? Could you take a guess at this? <laughs> One obvious answer is your local congregation, church. What we usually mean with small c, church. The, the actual group of Christians who are sharing the word and the sacraments, right? The word usually doesn't get transmitted over some uh, wave right into your brain. Somebody somewhere actually has to tell it to you most of the time. And again, like we said last week, we were bracketing out the possibility of people who have their Bible out in their home all by themselves and regularly read it. We'll 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 circle around to that today. But just to finish up this point we were making last week, Ordinarily, what happens is you encounter other Christians who share the word with you and the sacraments with you. And lo and behold, the Holy Spirit works through that to bring you to faith. 
And uh, just as a point of uh, make or evidence here, when did any of you become a Christian? <laughs> if you're a good, solid Lutheran and you were baptized as an infant, you'll probably say, the day I was baptized. I can say that, too. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was baptized into the Catholic faith. But... Right. And whether you're baptized in the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or whatever, baptism is still baptism. Uh, we're not gonna, we're not get, doing this subject on baptism, but just as a uh, point of reference to what we believe and what uh, the vast majority of Christians believe, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, many uh, Anglicans. When you're baptized, God is actually making you the promise to save you and, give, and make you his child, and thereby giving his grace to you, and therefore giving your faith something to cling to, giving you the promise that creates faith. So that uh, when you're baptized as a baby, the Holy Spirit is still there working on you through that word joined to the water to bring you to faith. Point being, in all of this, somebody preached to you or somebody baptized you. You were, to use the word we just started to work, Christians congregated with you around the word and the sacrament. Even if it was just one other Christian gathering with you, what you gathered around was the word and the sacraments. And in that very literal sense, you were at that moment part of a congregation where the word was being proclaimed, the sacraments administered, and the Holy Spirit was active to bring you to faith. Already you can see the connection of what does the local congregation have to do with the big C church? The local congregation is where ordinarily word and sacraments are actually being preached and shared. And therefore, that is where the Holy Spirit is typically active to bring people to faith. Any questions about that? That's just kind of a review of what we had touched on toward the end of last time. This doesn't have anything to do with the, what we talked about last time, but in today's age, now we have churches like we do, we put it on the internet. Right. You know, and then it's on the radio too, so a lot of people see it on TV and hear it on the radio. Right. They don't necessarily come to church. Right. This, of course, gets into the question, uh, well, when you raise the issue of what about all this modern technology? Where we have now, um, I mean, back in the uh, early 1900s, in fact, our church body was one of the great pioneers of this. Lutheran Hour, um, the Lutheran Hour on the radio. It was one of the first and certainly the most successful at the time Christian broadcasting that was meant to pro broadcast the word being preached. Uh, these days with COVID, just about every congregation broadcasts in some sense services over the internet. Um, so technology raises the interesting question that we could have approached from otherwise, but exactly is a local congregation? And um, what does it even mean to be part of it? Do you really need, say, to go to the building with other Christians in order to share the word and the sacraments? Does it necessarily need to happen, and how does that even technology relate to all of that? Well, the word happens, but not the sacrament. Well, there's a big point right there already. One thing you will never get over the radio, and you will never get over the internet, is the Lord's Supper. You just won't. Um, by the same token, uh, unless they uh, attach like a super soaker to your TV monitor that I can uh, remotely activate, chances are baptism is not likely to happen. <laughs> over the internet or over the radio. There are, the sacraments, more than anything else, simply require the physical presence of Christians with other people. It's just by their very nature. You can't share a meal of bread and wine from 100 miles away, nor can you have somebody apply water to you from 100 miles away. You can try, and we, could, we can get into some other things that people have experimented with, um, there have been congregations who have tried and pastors who have tried to do a virtual communion, which I trademarked Zoomunion. Eh, eh? Zoomunion. Because, you know, Zoom. 
um, <laughs> where the uh, pastor would rec- tell everybody to get bread and wine in their own houses. He'd speak the words of institution, and uh, then they would partake of the meal that way, in the theory, was the idea. Well, there, there's all kinds of questions we could get into. By the way, the LCMS, our uh, CTCR, came out with several statements that said, this is not a good thing to do. Don't do that. If you're a pastor in our church body doing that, cease and desist. <laughs> um, or face some kind of uh, discipline, because it's bad. Um, but we can get talking to the, go into the nitty-gritty of that a little later. But uh, point being, like Kathy said, sacraments, at the very least, still seem to require, in a way that just hearing the word does not necessarily and obviously require, presence with one another. But before we go into those kinds of questions, they're really important questions to talk about, let's first uh, nail down what we're talking about when we talk about a local congregation, first of all, so that we can start to talk about more intelligibly, what about all these things that seem to go a little different from our normal ideas about local congregations, like this new technology, like people who have just the Bible at home and don't even need to fire up the computer or turn on the radio. Heck, I can just open the Bible and read it. Um, When we're talking about a local congregation, what we mean very specifically are people who, again, we'll just use the word because it helps clarify very, congregate for the purpose of sharing word and sacrament. That's what a local congregation is. Christians gathering to share the word and the sacraments in their midst. That is the extent of what we mean by a local congregation, by and large. Where people are gathering to share the word and the sacraments, there is the local, a local congregation. Obviously, there's tons of these around. You could open the phone book, and there are all kinds of congregations who, at the very least, ostensibly are gathering to share the word, Not all of them are Lutheran, obviously, and not all of them necessarily even care about sharing the sacraments. We could talk about that as a whole other topic. But point being, for a congregation to be really a church in any sense of the word, big C or small c, there has to be sharing the word and the sacraments. That's the whole point of congregating. Share the word and the sacraments. Because, again, the word and the sacraments are the central thing in the life of the congregation because they're the source of the Christian life of any individual in the congregation. What creates your faith? Well, we just said that. Holy Spirit working through the word and the sacrament. What nourishes, what strengthens your faith when it grows weak or as you mature in it? Ongoing engagement with the word and the sacraments where the word of the Lord speaks to you to help you better understand your life, to help better uh, steal you against all kinds of uh, difficulties in life, to help sustain your hope in the face of a lot of troubles, all kinds of ways that the word penetrates into our hearts and into our lives and reorients us to focus more fully and more firmly and more confidently on Christ our Savior. That's what the word does. That's what the sacraments do. And so by virtue of the word and the sacraments, we call these gatherings churches. Why do we do that? Well, again, word church means, strictly speaking, body of Christ, people of God, people who have faith. Now, of course, not everybody who goes to the local congregation, not everybody who goes to the small C church is actually a member of the body of Christ. There are all kinds of reasons people could come to this building to worship on Sunday. Some of them might be doing it because, well, you know, mom's making me do it. and Whatever. I'll make her happy. Or all kinds of reasons. I know people who go because they're not necessarily here, but I've heard of people who go because that's where some business owners go and they want to make good connections. It's a great place to make connections. Um... There may be people who sincerely believe that they're doing it for all the right reasons and yet are sincerely wrong. All of which is to say, just because you come into church on a Sunday, sit in a pew, go through the motions, doesn't mean you're a Christian because it doesn't mean you actually have faith. So we don't know that everybody here, even if they're here every Sunday, actually is a Christian. What we do know 
with absolute certainty, because it's based on nothing less than the promises and commands of Christ, is that where the word and sacraments are being proclaimed according to Christ's institution, there the Holy Spirit is working, and the Holy Spirit will work faith in at least some of the people who are gathering. So because we know the Holy Spirit is active there to create faith, we know that the body of Christ is present in the midst of that local congregation. Does that make sense? That's why one of the phrases we use for uh, the word in the sacraments are marks of the church. They are marks, signs, indicators that the church is most certainly there among the people, that some of the people are part of the church. We don't know that precisely by what the people themselves say about themselves, because people can lie, people can just be self-deceived. What we do know is that God will never lie. And when he says, here I am in the midst of you, there he is in the midst of you, doing his thing, calling people to faith, forgiving sins. Makes sense so far. All right, so that's what a local congregation is, um, and that's its basic relation to the church. It's the church, if you want to say, incarnated in the world. It's where the church, the body of Christ, has flesh and blood uh, here in the world. Um, because that's where you can find the church. That's where you will actually know you're finding the people of God, the body of Christ. Because that is where you know you will find the Holy Spirit working to join people to Christ. Any questions about any of that before we start to dive into some uh, other questions related to some of the things you've been raising? One thing about, he was talking about the Lutheran hour. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was ever intended to take the place of going to church. It was to bring the people to church. Right. In, in fact, the official slogan of uh, the Lutheran Hour Ministries, LHM, which is still um, alive and well, is to bring Christ to the nations and the nations to the church. That is to say, their entire goal is not, we're going to replace the church by getting people to hear the word and bring them to faith, but to bring the word of Christ to people so that as they come to faith, they will also become part of the full living faith that necessarily leads to wanting to be an active part of the body of Christ, engaged with other Christians, gathering with other Christians in a local congregation to receive the word and the sacraments. As we talked about before, after all, there are kind of a few commands and promises associated with specific things like the sacraments. It is one thing already we can just say off the bat from this. It's one thing to say, I have the word of God via my Bible on the shelf, via the uh, Lutheran Hour broadcast on the radio, via my uh, local internet connection, all of which may be very true, and which no doubt would be sufficient to bring you to faith, and even to nourish your faith to a very large extent. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> to be able to listen to these things. And it's certainly true that the Holy Spirit can indeed work faith through you hearing the word in those ways. But what does a Christian always want to do when they're a Christian? Who do they start to want to obey? They want to actually start obeying Christ. Because faith implies I trust Christ and what he tells me. And I trust that what he says to me is a good thing that is good for me to do. And so when this Christ who I believe in through these radio broadcasts, through my Bible on the shelf, through these internet connections, tells me things in the, very clearly and plainly, take, eat, take, drink, for instance, as we already talked about a few weeks ago, I'm kind of going to assume that those commands are worth listening to and start to obey them. In fact, by refusing to obey them, by ignoring them to the extent that I'm aware of them, what I'm doing is I'm consciously ignoring the Christ I say I believe in. By the same token, moving away from commands to promises. When I believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior who sustains me, and then I hear promises like, you can even meet my flesh and my blood in this sacrament. You will get the renewal of my covenant. You will be bound up with me and with the whole body of Christ in profound ways by taking and eating and drinking. My faith in Christ will lead me to desire and hunger for those promises. Rather than to say, Thanks, Christ. That's a nice promise and all, but I already got the bare minimum of what you uh, promise, and that's enough for me. Thank you. My hunger is slaked. 
and therefore I do not desire anything else you are offering me. It's a very, at the, it, at the very least, that is what we would say is a sign of spiritual unhealth, both of those things. Doesn't mean cannot happen. Does not mean that person is dead spiritually, does not have faith. It means they are at the very least in a very unhealthy place. That is at very least dangerous to their continued connection to Christ through faith. Make sense? Again, sacraments are a great thing to go to to point this out. But it's not the only thing to talk about. Um, but before we go into, uh, does that, I know I kind of sent off your question to a, a long degree. But uh, before we go any further into that, um, so I don't make this a complete confused thing of let's just randomly talk about a whole bunch of stuff. This definition of the local congregation does lead us to ask, before we dive into these questions of technology and things, so what does it look like? When we think local congregation, when we think church in that uh, sense, go to church, you probably assume that it will almost always look more or less like what we do here on a Sunday morning, right? People go to a building dedicated to the purpose, um, you sit in pews, you've got your organ music, you're, you're aware there are other forms of music out there, of course, but uh, you're, we're happy with our form of music. Uh, we have the pastor up front with an altar, with candles, with a pulpit, with a lectern, and we spend, uh, hopefully if the pastor is aware of time, exactly no more than one hour <laughs> listening to the word of God and receiving the sacraments, right? Obviously the one hour is a little facetious, we... It's okay if it goes a little longer or a little short. But that's what we think of, I'm assuming, when we think go to church, right? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Why maybe? The fire, the tornado came through and took this all out of here. We're still a congregation. Well, exactly. How important is the building to what we do? Okay, let me actually refer to it. How necessary is this building to being a co the congregation? It has absolutely no necessity whatsoever. It could get wiped out tomorrow in a tornado or another freak lightning strike actually burns the place down. And uh, guess what? We're still this congregation. Uh, I, I would still be somewhere around on Sunday morning to uh, offer you guys communion and uh, to preach sermons and so forth. The building is useful for a purpose. After all, I mean, uh, if we didn't have the building, we'd have to meet somewhere, right? This is, this is, when, you're, when you're gathering together to share the word in the sacraments, it does imply you do need a place to do this, right? Doesn't mean it has to be a dedicated place, but we can't very well meet nowhere. Could be out in the open field. Could be at the pastor's house. It'd be a little crowded if we had a good crowd on Sunday, but it could be done. <laughs> could be in a barn down the road. There are so many options. One of the reasons we have buildings, by the way, is not because they're necessary or they make it more holy, but because, first and foremost, you need a place to gather. And in a situation like ours, where we're spread all around the county, it's kind of convenient to have one centralized location where we can all gather at a set time, set place, not having to worry about the elements um, of the weather coming down and raining us out and making it very hard to pay attention to preach and so on and so forth. It's just a useful thing to help us perform the primary functions of what makes us a congregation, which is gathering to share the word in the sacraments. You don't need this building. In fact, you don't even need to have just one group here of all the same people. We could make three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty congregations out of the same number of people we have here every Sunday. In point of fact, uh, there used to be more congregations in the area LCMS. Why are there fewer now? It's not just because people stopped going to church. It's because people could start going further to church. When you have a horse and a cart, it takes a while to move five miles down the road. <laughs> when you have your, your nice um, Subaru, it takes you just a few minutes to go the same distance. So precisely because of changing technology, the way our congregations looked changed quite a lot as bigger groups could travel together from further distances in the same or less amount of time. Prior to that, 
Well, maybe you only had a congregation of 15 to 20 as a regular feature because when you live five miles apart, that's half your Sunday just getting to and from church. And so you have smaller, more numerous congregations. By the same token, let's say we don't live in America here where it's uh, perfectly easy for us to travel down relatively good-shaped roads in our relatively decent vehicles. Let's say we lived out in uh, a very Muslim part of Africa where Christianity was heavily persecuted. Road infrastructure is awful. What will the church look like? Will it necessarily be um, a group of, say, maybe 50 people from the whole area gathering together in one centralized location, whether a building, a field, or someone's house? Not necessarily. Might be a bad idea to try to get that many people together. Might just be a couple of families gathered around in one house. What do you think the, ro- the church looked like back in Paul's day? Let's, let's ask that. How do you think their worship life looked like on a given Sunday morning? And we will, it is worth saying they did from very early on start worshiping together on Sunday mornings. But let's say uh, good old Ephesus or Corinth. Pick one of these congregations that Paul was writing to. What do you imagine the local congregation looked like? First of all, let's ask this. Where do you think they met? Mostly in homes. House churches is what we uh, like to call them these days. People gathered in the homes of fellow Christians. How big were these congregations, do you think? Maybe on a good day at the beginnings, 20 people. Maybe a dozen. Maybe, maybe just only a dozen. For a, well, first of all, there were two different possibilities. One was that they would gather at the local synagogue, which was kind of like a local church building today, because the Jews who used it for worship would believe and allow people to gather there to worship in that way. But by and large, um, it was house churches. And by and large, these were not huge gatherings for several reasons. Houses weren't that big back then. <laughs> Um, people had to walk to get there. Right. People had to walk to get there. Um, in this in foreign countries. Exactly. And by the way, churches were almost always in the cities, not in the countries back in those days. Just because, on the one hand, it was very hard to evangelize out in the rural areas. Second of all, rural areas are, as you may know, much more conservative and uh, want to stick to their ways than people in the urban areas. And that's always been true in world history. It took a very long time for people in the country to stop being pagan. Um, Centuries after, in fact, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, there were still plenty of pagans living out in the countryside, just because slower to change out there, harder to reach people, that kind of thing. But they were in cities, they were in houses, people had farther to walk. Um, And let's be honest, Not everybody converted when they heard the message. There were only a few small converts at first. And they weren't well thought of fairly early on. It didn't take very long before what sounded like a really neat message for some people started to sound to their neighbors like really problematic messages. Um, They were accused of being cannibals. Why do you think they might be accused of being cannibals? Christians. Christ's body. When you go and say something, I'm going to go eat Christ's body and blood today. What? (laughs) Cannibals! They also practiced a religion in a way that seems to lure people away from absolute loyalty to the Roman Empire. They liked to call all the gods you had been worshipping your entire life a bunch of phonies, possibly demons, and insisted that there's only one Lord. So, not a popular cultural message back in the day. Also, by the way, it said, yeah, we know that you love sleeping around with lots of women. We we know you love to uh, abuse your slaves. By the way, we also know that homosexuality is a very popular pastime in this empire. All of that has to stop if you're going to be like us. Most of the ways you live your life are flat out wrong. Good way to win converts, right? So, they were very small groups. For one thing, the houses were small. For one thing, they had to walk further. For another thing, it wasn't exactly a popular message that lined up with everybody's values. Uh, So it was just sometimes one family, in fact, ties. Think of Cornelius, him and his 
household were baptized. Do you think that, that they were immediately welcomed into the Jewish synagogue who didn't particularly like Gentiles? Almost certainly not. They were probably the beginnings of a house church. Lydia, for instance, certainly was the beginning of the house church in that town, um, where just one, two, maybe three families or members of families would come to faith. And immediately, in those early days, led by the apostles themselves as their uh, interim pastors before an elder was appointed, they would gather regularly on the Lord's Day, as it says, to... Uh, devote themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. They would gather to share the Lord's Supper, read the scriptures, to learn and grow and pray together. It, point being here, the local congregation can actually look very different from place to place. There are very precious few commands about what the church must always look like and do. There are things that the church must, if it's going to be truly a local congregation, must always look like and do. But they're precious few. Some of those things that we have clear commands in Scripture for, obviously, there's a preach the word. <laughs> you need to be gathering together to share the word in the sacraments. That's just a clear command in Scripture. We've already viewed several of those. And therefore, that's non-optional for congregations and, for that matter, for Christians, because it's a command, not optional. Um, can you be Christian without it? I suppose in a certain sense, like we've been saying, yes, faith can exist without it, but it's in a very unhealthy state. Second of all, um, congregations are to show love for one another and to encourage one another. Uh, members of the congregation are very clearly, very repeatedly commanded to take care of one another physically and spiritually. It's, again, non-optional. There are many different ways you can go about that. That doesn't mean you're required when somebody gets sick to make so many um, hot dishes for them, or casseroles. Hot dishes is what they call it up in Minnesota. They don't call it casserole. <laughs> <laughs> they would call them hot up there. Everything else. Everything that's 90 degrees is hot. <laughs> but uh, it's simply to say that some way or another, the congregation ought to be taking care of its members. And that means, mem and since the congregation in the scripture is not some abstract formal structure over and above the actual people, what it means is the actual people in the congregation should be taking care of one another's needs, physical, spiritual. Which, by the way, brings us to uh, another point about the word. Um, when we're talking about sharing the word in sacraments, we don't actually mean that I just sit there passive recipients of the word. That the whole point about scripture is for the word to simply address me. And that makes that is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Granted, faith gets me there, but um, faith always wants to be shared. It's a necessary corollary that you want when you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I also believe that Jesus Christ wants to be other people's lords and saviors, and I want to bring them to Christ. And the first area of concern for that as a Christian is, in fact, my fellow Christians, that they stay connected to the body of Christ. That is to say, when, I, I like to use the word share word and sacrament to get to the very biblical idea that what happens in the local congregation is what Paul says in Hebrews 10 when he says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It's not just... I have the command that you go into the same place and all sit there and let the pastor speak at you. If you read the, the text, what it actually is talking about, encourage one another and stir one another up to good works. What, the, what our confessions call the mutual consolation of the brethren. The idea of sharing means not just receiving, but giving. We gather together to uphold one another in the faith, to pray with and for each other, to both hear and confess to one another the word of God, the lordship of Christ. That's part of the reason we have a creed stated every service, to give you guys an opportunity not to just tell me, the pastor, as if that's going to do, do you any good about what you believe, but to give a statement to everybody else there. 
this is what I believe, this is what you should believe, because this is the truth of who God is and what he's done for you. You're gathering to share the word with other people. It's a very big part of what it means to share the word in the sacraments. And that's a very big part of how you have your faith sustained with other, in your walk with Christ. How many of you think your faith would be nearly what it is if the only thing you ever did was come in, sit down in the pew, listen to what I said, said nothing else to anyone else. Um, we weren't allowed to pray together. We just silently pray in our heads, and then you'd go home. A very big part, I imagine, of your formation as a Christian was actually being around other Christians and not just your amazing pastor, who no doubt has done so much to single-handedly sustain you in the faith. Obviously not. It is with being with your parents constantly encouraged you, one can hope, being with the congregation who prays for you, who you talk to about your problems and will even say just the off-the-cuff kind of thing. It's in the Lord's hands to drag you out of this thinking in your head, oh, it's all falling apart, it's horrible, everything is bad, and then they just randomly cut in with, well, it's in the Lord's hands. And that's all they say. Suddenly my friend, it might just break in through all of that nonsense that I've been telling myself, and now I remember, you know, that's true. I'm very worried about this, and no doubt I'll probably continue to be worried about this, but it is true. I had kind of forgotten there is God in charge of all of this. All these little things that we don't even necessarily think of or remember the next day that happen in our conversation with each other, our prayers for each other, just being in the presence of one another, speaking with and hearing them. That does tremendous things for our faith as God speaks his word to you through those things. Well, if you're hearing the word, you're going to become inspired. And if you're inspired, you're going to do some kind of works. Right. Whether it's spreading through evangelism or whether it's just helping someone with a meal or helping someone repair something. Or, I mean, that works is going to come in any form. So if you don't have the works... You know, or you have an inspiration. If you don't have an inspiration, obviously you probably have little or no faith. So right. Well, it goes right back to the point from James you brought up several weeks right. ago. Um, faith without works is dead. I mean, the works aren't the point. But uh, if you have faith that Christ is Christ, you're going to want to do what Christ says, and so you're going to want to do these good works. So we're we're bringing some things up here. We've all, I've been pointing back and forth to what it means to actually gather to share the word in the sacraments. It's not just pastor to people, although that's certainly part of it, but it's also people to people. Um, love one another. By the way, how well can you love and take care of your fellow Christians from behind a computer screen? As much as I uh, no doubt appreciate our ability to broadcast the word to those who are unable to come to church for whatever reason, um, and there are people who, for whatever reason, are unable to come to church and very much appreciate hearing it. As much as I even appreciate maybe happening to reach somebody with the word through our services that almost never wants to go to church, probably doesn't hear the word, but still gets that and gets the same, kind of like the Lutheran Hour radio, it's a good thing, but it doesn't actually replace anything. Because no matter how much I hear the word, even if, I'm a real, even if I've decided from now on, I'm going to be the person who I used to come to church, but now I can watch it online. So much better to do it in my jams with my coffee and my donut in the morning. It's just more enjoyable for me. No doubt uh, you feel that you're getting a lot out of that. What are you giving to those poor people in the pews you used to sit next to, who you used to be able to encourage? How can you show love to somebody you never see talk to, or interact with. You can't. Love requires interaction. Uh, so to fulfill the basic command that Christians should care for one another, in some way or another, I actually have to interact with other Christians. The local congregation is um, what you might say the primary uh, place where Christ puts me in contact with Christians who I can show love to. Uh, one of those other things that's... Uh, just isn't a negotiable factor, is that um, there has to be a pastoral ministry in the place. It's just, it's not people's idea, it's God's idea to call and send pastors. Now again, that doesn't mean that pastors have to look exactly the same in every place. That does not mean 
that uh, the way our congregation is doing pastor is the only way to do it. That one person is responsible for the ministry to the whole congregation in the way that this and most small LCMS congregations are. It's been a useful, helpful way to do it, but there's no reason you can't have three, four, five, ten pastors. What a pastor is, is somebody who is called by God through the congregation to have the specific task of administering uh, the word and the sacraments on the congregation's behalf. That is to say, we're the person who's there to make sure the word and sacrament is getting shared and proclaimed. That doesn't mean we're solely responsible for sharing the word like we just talked about. Every time you come to get there for church, you're sharing the word with each other. Uh, Ordinarily, pastors are the ones who should be the ones um, overseeing and giving the sacraments. But as we know, in emergencies, any lay person can baptize, right? Doesn't make it less valid. But by and large, this is how God has arranged for the congregation to work. He wants people to, because the word and sacraments are so important to the way God has uh, set up his church on earth and works to bring people to faith, he commands that there is always someone in the congregations set apart for the specific purpose of making sure the word and sacraments get done. That's what a pastor is. And there can be 12, you could have 12 pastors in a congregation this size. If, I suppose, the congregation really wanted it, it'd be a little confusing on who would do what, (laughs) considering the size of the congregation. But my point is, pastor is not one man per congregation. It is, of course, scripturally speaking, always a man and always men. Uh, We could talk about 1 Timothy and uh, several other places. But point being, it's one of those precious few non-optional commands Christ gives for a local congregation to have. Let's go back to those house churches back in the day. Who was the pastor for Lydia's little house church? Well, for the time being, it was Paul, who was also the apostle. What did Paul and the other apostles do when they had to move on? They appointed elders or commanded churches to appoint elders. Elder back in those days being another word for pastor. Somebody to oversee and administer the word of the sacraments, shepherd the flock, and so on and so forth. Um, It's just the way it always had been. And, you know, in some house churches, in some very small local congregations, it could be the dad of the family. If there are no other options around, let's say, extremely Muslim and uh, persecutorial uh, place out in uh, Western Africa... Maybe you don't even know where the near, where other Christians are. Because it's so dangerous to be a Christian. Who has a clue who a Christian is except the people in my family? And I have no idea how I would go out and find them. So what do you do? Well, then you have a little church there in your family. And the father becomes, by dint of necessity, the pastor of that congregation. That's how the church has worked in a lot of places. And there's nothing implicitly wrong with it. Again, there are precious few things. Now, obviously, the ideal is um, if you know there are other Christians around, you don't want to... That doesn't mean, okay, everybody, you could all be your own little house church family, go to your house, uh, call your uh, head of household as your pastor, and uh, then there's your congregation. Because one thing that Christian love drives us to do, and the desire to... uh, encourage more people with the faith is actually to find bigger groups of Christians to do this with. Not to set up lots of little isolated congregations that will have nothing to do with each other. But for the sake of building each other up in love, for the sake of showing more love, for the sake of having more opportunities to be receive and to offer the word and sacraments to one another, and for the sake of also having better equipped pastors, gather in, we try to gather in larger congregations where possible. Make sense? That's the purpose of the Missouri Synod, by the way. One of the purposes um, is to recognize that it's not just this congregation and that's all we care about, that's all that matters, but to help other congregations who we can't, for all kinds of geographical and other reasons, directly worship with, we can help show love to them. We can help promote the ministry in their midst, even as we expect them to help promote it in ours. It's how we work together as the body of Christ. Make sense about all of that. Any questions or thoughts with any of that? All right. So the point was to say the local congregation, which we have already said 
is related to the body of Christ in a very necessary way, since by local congregation we mean Christians who are gathered to share the word and the sacraments, whether a large group or a very, very small group. Local congregation is how the body of Christ is, becomes present in this world, because that's where Christians are made, sustained, and grow. So then, let's dive into uh, some of these other sidebar issues we've been only sort of leaving out because we've been touching on a lot of how we approach those already. What about the Christians who therefore say, I can be a Christian, I can be part of the body of Christ without the local congregation because I can have faith due to my Bible being in my home, my radio having my Christian broadcasting network, um, my TV having uh, whatever televangelist you want to uh, name. Let's even assume that it's not a heretical one, like Joel Osteen. By the way, Joel Osteen is bad. Don't make him a habit to listen to. <laughs> um, but let's also say, or, or even go as far as saying, but I watch my, uh, the local worship every single Sunday. Why, can't, why isn't that okay enough? Can't I be a Christian without those things? Um, what would you say? We've already given a lot of possible ways of addressing it, but what would you say? And that person needs to be really hungry and thirsty for the sacrament. Okay, on the one hand, communion is a huge one here. Why are you... So, Grant, we don't even have to argue about whether you're a Christian or not, or whether you can do it or not. You can just say, well, what about the Lord's Supper? Don't you miss that? Because as soon as a person starts to talk about how they don't need the Lord's Supper, they're putting themselves against the commands and the promises of Christ. Bad to do. Uh, what else, aside from the Lord's Supper, could we say? Because already we can, we can also draw the implications, therefore. Technology, scripture, radio, all of this, none of it is, a, is able to give you the sacraments. And therefore, at the very least, that kind of life as a Christian. It might be possible to be a Christian, but it is deprived of one of the fundamental things Christ offers for Christians. So therefore, it's, it's deficient, it's unhealthy. In the same way that a human body deprived of all kinds of various nutrients that normally are good to the working of the body. I suppose you can live on cheeseburgers alone, but is that good for your body and its longevity? Probably not. Same body. You could live by hearing the word alone. Your spiritual life is meant to be sustained by other nutrients, so to speak. What else might you say? Putting the sacraments aside, because that's always a really good one to go to in this kind of thing. But what else could you, would you say? You can ask them who they've been sharing all that with. Okay. Who have you been sharing the word with? Do you even care about all the other Christians in the world or in your community? Do you even know them? And do you ever get together with them to pray with them? Uh, why don't you think you need prayers from other Christians? Why don't you think you need to pray with other Christians? All kinds of questions you can ask. That, and just the fact that you can ask those very fair questions, all of which tend to say to help a person realize, you know, maybe there's more to being Christian than just my personal faith internally in its relation to Jesus. Maybe I should care a little bit about the other people Jesus cares about. How do you do that by yourself with your Bible? And you can say, well, I'm a good person. I take care of other people in the community. Great. A, do you help share the word with those people? Kind of important, because honestly, what good does it do if you get a person to live 100 years and they still aren't Christian? <laughs> B, what, do you do, what about the fact that Christ does, in fact, have us commanded to care especially for the brothers of the faith? Okay, so already we can talk about the love aspect and the sharing aspect. Since those are implicit parts of what Christ calls Christians to do and to be, why do you think you're a perfectly healthy Christian when you're deprived not just of sacraments, but of, the two, of these two huge parts of Christian life? 
goes kind of back to the same thing about the necessity of baptism that we've talked about. Granted, you can be saved and not be baptized. There are circumstances where people are prevented from getting to baptism. We talked about uh, battlefield conversion, where there's just no time, no opportunity. Guy gets blown to bits before he's baptized, but did convert to Christ. Is he in heaven? Yes. Faith alone saves. But, by the same token, who with faith would want to ignore and absent themselves from something that Christ offers, commands you to do, and not only commands you to do, but offers so many great promises and blessings and assurances with, which is what baptism does. Faith drives toward baptism in those times when baptism itself is not the source of faith. Baptism can be and is often the source of faith, just as the local congregation is very often, in the vast majority of cases, the source of your faith, in the literal sense that you did not believe until the local congregation brought the word to you and you became a believer. It was literally the point of origin. Does <laughs> the Holy Spirit work through the word and the sacrament of that congregation? Sir? But even if, setting aside the question of its origin, faith should drive you to want to associate with the congregation, with a congregation in that way. And honestly, I don't know really what else to say about any of this, because that covers pretty much all the new technologies when we're talking about it. Great though they are, God be praised we have the ability to do these things. Because there are people, like we talked about, and we'll circle back to that now, about with all these reasons for not being part of the church. There are people who have legitimate reasons that they truly cannot come to the local congregation at our worship services at our scheduled times. People who are, for instance, shut in. They're in the nursing home. Bessie Booty is not going to make it here any Sunday in the near future. It's just not going to happen. For one thing, she's physically prevented from doing so. If she tried, they would stop her. It's not even practical for her to get down here. So she's unable to do it. For people like her, it's a great blessing that we have things like the Lutheran Hour um, the radio broadcast where she can continue to hear. By the way, though, that doesn't mean she isn't part of the local congregation, that she's only restricted to hearing the word, does it? What is true about virtually all of our shut-ins? Do they receive the Lord's Supper? They get the Lord's Supper. How does that happen? You take it. Exactly. I don't fire up the phone and say, okay, you got your bread and your wine nearby? <laughs> no. The church goes to them and shares the word and sacraments, congregates with them around the word and the sacrament, even if it's just the pastor or one of you guys going to visit, sharing a brief prayer or a word of encouragement. The church comes to them. So even though it's a blessing for people who legitimate, there are people who legitimately cannot come to worship with us in this place, but that does not mean that they are excluded from participation in the local congregation. The technologies are beneficial that help supplement that local congregation, but it's only a supplement. We make every effort to ensure they are still part of this worshiping community. Um, the same thing should go for those whose work schedules prevent them from coming. Um, again, granted, we can talk with people, um, about whether their priorities are in the right place. If, for instance, they have a job where they could easily request off, or it's not an insurmountable impossibility that I could request off Sunday mornings, there are a lot of places, probably more than we assume, that would be willing to work with us. We just don't ask, or we don't push the issue very hard. But, that being said, there are certainly situations where your lawyer will not allow you the time off on Sunday morning. And it's easy to say, well, then the job isn't worth it, but we do have obligations to our families to support our kids, our spouses, so on and so forth. And it's not nothing to say, well, I'm just going to stop being able to support them for a few months while I try to figure out if I can get another job that will let me go to church. For those cases, the church should, or the local congregation should be willing to make every effort to make them be able to do both commands of Christ without interruption support your family, and worship with the community. Offer different worship times. Treat them as a shut-in 
for an interim period. Obviously, that's not a good long-term solution if they're not actually shut-ins. But temporarily, treat them that way until we can work on an arrangement where it's possible for them to come to church. Because I, in theory, their objection is not, I don't see the point of church. It's that I can't do it and do everything that I absolutely need to do for my family. Now again, granted, eternal life trumps physical life. But why not, as the congregation who's called to share in love, show sharing and loving by bending to help them do both? Then you get all that third, that other class, we'll call it the other class, who have all kinds of other reasons for going, for not coming, that don't have anything to do with, I want to come, but reason A, B, or C makes it very, very, very hard for me to come. All those other classes we talked about, like people who say, well, I get more out of, let's go with that one first. I get more out of spiritually out in nature. Okay, no doubt you may very well feel closer to God out in your fishing boat, out in your hunting stand, out on your hike than you do while you're sitting in a pew listening to a sermon or maybe trying to listen to a sermon, not necessarily having the greatest success. There's a very big difference between those two places, though. In one of them, God actually promises to be present for you to forgive your sins. In the other, you have no such promise. Whatever you feel like, there is an objective difference between the two. In one, it's just you and your feelings about God. In the other, in the local congregation, it is you and the concrete promises of God. And that's a very big thing that people need to realize. God does not depend on our feelings. However close you feel to God doesn't matter, frankly. There are people who have felt... You think that Muhammad didn't feel very close to God when he was convinced that some angel was speaking to him about the Quran? You think that Buddhists don't feel closer to God (laughs) as they feel that they're becoming closer to the oneness of the universe? Absolutely they do. Probably more than a lot of Christians feel closer to God. Does that mean they're closer to God? That just shows the devil's really doing a good job. Exactly. The devil is very good at messing with our feelings. And let's face it, the very idea that we're sinners means that we draw satisfaction from all the wrong things. That's what it means to be a sinner. I desire and am satisfied by things other than God and his will. So it makes sense that I feel more spiritually fulfilled out in the field where I'm doing something I love than when I'm here in church, hearing again, that this person's a sinner, that that person's a sinner, that Jesus died for you. Obviously, one is going to appeal to me more. But in one case, God himself has said, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. You can trust your feelings or you can trust me. And people just need to be confronted with the fact that they're trusting their feelings rather than the concrete commands and promises of God. So that they recognize, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at. Now what am I going to do with it? And, you, and again, we could just go down the list that we, of people who say, I have enough faith, therefore I'm saved. What do I need this? What further benefit is it going to give me? Everything we've been saying about how the local congregation relates to church, about how the word and sacraments is what actually nourishes and strengthens our faith, about how faith draws you to want to share God's word, love other Christians. All of it is just part and parcel to healthy faith. Every objection you can think of to going to church, you, you now have the tools to talk about them and to, and to show very pointedly, this is a mistake on your part. Um, and not necessarily get all confrontational about it, but just you could either hold out the commands if they need to and apply the law in the sense of this is what God says, this is where your life is divergent from it. That's a problem. What are we going to do about it? Or to go the less confrontational route, depending on where the person is. And it's not always appropriate to go the less confrontational route, by the way. Sometimes the confrontational route is the only appropriate route. But for the many times when it's not, look at what Christ has promised to give you here. Do you have that promise over there? Do you have that? You have faith, and I'm glad you're a brother or sister in faith. But since you are... Don't you hear what Christ has promised here? I can even show you where in the scriptures he's promised this. 
why don't you come and share it again? But do you get what I'm saying here? Already, from what we've talked about, we've all functionally addressed all of those possible objections we've talked about that first time we started this. Let me yeah. ask you a question. Sure. Okay. So what do you say to someone who says, well, I believe in God. I don't regularly go to church or whatever, but I believe in him. I pray, you know. Mm -hmm. But so you're telling me that this is, you know, saying that. Right. So you're telling me that if I don't partake in the sacraments like communion and whatever, that God won't forgive me? No, oh, right. To keep them from turning the other way, you know. You say, hey, you, you need this. Right. Um, well, there's, a, I mean, it depends on the person and their temperament, but one of, there's several things you could say. One of the things that you could say is, I'm not saying that God won't forgive you. I'm just saying in the Lord's Supper, God most certainly will forgive you. Why are you so resistant to going and getting what he's offering you? Or you can turn around and say, I'm not saying what God or will or won't do, but here's what God says he will and won't do. What he says he will do for you in the Lord's Supper is this. What he says about people who deny his commands is this. What are you going to say? What are we, now, what do you say about that? So there's two, there's several ways you could do it. The two I've raised is, on the one hand, hold out to them when they're saying, you're saying I'm not forgiven. Correct them by saying, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, Christ is offering you so much more here. So why stay away? What is just, what, what do you have that justifies not wanting these things. The other one is to say, look, this is, this is truly between you and God. Here's what God clearly says. Now, what are you going to do with that? You will not be able to persuade everybody about these things. You will not. Just as I can, none of us will ever persuade everybody in the community to come to church or believe in Jesus. The word... <laughs> will not always create faith in everybody or repentance or uh, bring people to fully understand what Christ is saying. And so on the one hand, sometimes we have to keep continuing to engage it, just being encouraged. For instance, if somebody's like that, maybe it's appropriate to just continually encourage. Say, well, I'm not saying you're not forgiven. Christ died for you. But look at what Christ is also here offering you. And then Every so often, keep reminding them of this. You're really hurting yourself here by not coming and getting the gifts. But at the end of the day, you have to also realize sometimes it won't bring people to the result you're hoping for. Not everybody will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. By the same token, not everybody will come to church even when it is clear from the scriptures that it is Commanded, promised, and therefore a profoundly good idea. It's also worth mentioning, again, we do want to hold out into our mind, it is not as though simply because they refrain from going to church, they are therefore no longer a Christian and never going to heaven. Like we've said, faith can exist in those situations. It's just an extremely dangerous and unhealthy, and so we don't want to encourage them in their unhealthy behaviors. Interestingly, and this is just kind of a, we'll finish up with this little point. Uh, due to our communion talks on Sunday, I did look up our constitution about these kinds of things. Um, Self-exclusion in our constitution is a reason to terminate membership. The congregation to formally terminate membership of a person who, it doesn't specify how long of a period, but who for a long period of time does not... Um, come and partake of the Lord's Supper or attend worship. Because, for an obvious reason, what makes you a member of a local congregation, by the way? To be there! If a congregation is the people who share the word in the sacraments, what a member of a congregation is, is somebody who shares the word in sacraments. Name on a list is not membership. Being the child of a member is not membership. Membership is fellowship. Fellowship sharing. And so our constitution reflects that uh, very scriptural understanding by saying people who self-exclude for a long period of time after reasonable attempts have been made as the language by the pastor and the elders to uh, admonish them and encourage them to return, uh, their names will be submitted to the voters assembly and by unanimous vote, it does have to be unanimous, <laughs> they will be removed from the uh, roster and functionally excommunicated. Because 
and, I, and it is worth saying, this is excommunication. That is to say, the congregation stops treating them as though they believe in Christ. Not because they necessarily don't, but because by their words and actions, they demonstrate a profound lack of faith in Christ. Make sense? Of course, the second they decide to come back, <laughs> what's the response? Welcome back! <laughs> Not, oh, sorry, you have to do this much penance, you have to give this much money, you have to show that you're sorry. <laughs> anyway, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.